0: This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Mauerbytes Labs, we looked at the potential countrywide banning of TikTok, the enormously popular short form video app used by teens around the world. Already prohibited by the US military and the Pentagon. TikTok drew intense scrutiny last month after a Reddit user allegedly found invasive data collection by the app. Complicating the matter is TikTok's Chinese origins, as some speculate the app could already be compromised by that country's government. For its part, TikTok pushed back on the fears, saying that its data is stored elsewhere and not subject to Chinese law. Let's be real here, though. TikTok could be selling our blood type data, and we wouldn't ban it. We have period tracking apps that gave information to Facebook, and those weren't banned. Suddenly, we care about the safety around TikTok? Come on. We also led businesses through simple steps in cloud workload security, the growing obstacle of securing your workforce and its internal resources while relying on platforms that are, by definition, outside the workplace. The good news is that because of the many separate apps, platforms, and workflows enabled by the cloud, securing those pieces from the spread of malware infection is easy. The bad news is that the simplicity of the cloud means employees could be using more unverified apps without a company knowing it. Some simple steps for security. Require new cloud apps to be approved by your IT department. Select who is responsible for cloud security, and select web applications that are secured at the application layer, with things like customized firewalls and and, end-to-end encryption. In no time, you'll be living on cloud nine. Didn't like that one, eh? Okay, okay. In no time, the right cloud workload security will protect you from a rainy day. Okay, not that one either. Okay, give me, give me one more chance here. No more cloudy skies ahead. Yeah, forget this. Finally, our threat intelligence team investigated the return of an infamous malware downloader developed by a supposed cybersecurity firm in Italy. It's a twisting tale that starts in March when researchers at Proofpoint discovered a Visual Basic 6 downloader they called GU Loader. The tool is deployed in malware campaigns to deliver remote access trojans and information stealers onto victims' machines. In June, a separate team of researchers found GU Loader's origins. Designed originally to fool malware detection software, one of its developers now works for a business in Italy called CloudEye. Soon after those researchers tied the downloader to the Italian company, CloudEye's operation slowed, and in July it said it had banned any malicious actors. That's where we come in. Despite CloudEye's claimed ban of the malicious use of its tools, our threat intelligence team found GU Loader used in the wild in a mouse spam campaign just last week. The activity could be driven by leftover builds of GU loader that are still in circulation, but we're not sure. The moral of this modern whodunit is simple. Don't make bad things. They have a tendency to stick around. In cybersecurity news across the world, HelpNet Security reported that not only does wearing a mask help prevent the spread of coronavirus, it also helps prevent accurate detection rates of facial recognition technology. Who knew defeating our upcoming cyber dystopia would be this sensible? The Register told readers that, following the British government's decision to ban Huawei's products from 5G mobile networks, China's ambassador to Britain turned the situation around, threatening to withdraw Huawei devices entirely. If the ambassador gets his way, he'll tell himself later, They didn't break up with me. I broke up with them. Publication The Asian Age warned people in New Delhi about the recently discovered Android malware BlackRock, which can steal credit card info and online banking credentials. Reportedly difficult to detect by some anti-malware tools, prevention of the malware remains simple. Don't download apps from untrusted sources. We know this, folks. As kids, we didn't trust strangers. As adults, we should do the same just uh, digitally. TechRadar Pro reported on the latest developments in Emotet campaigns. Now, the blog wrote, Emotet's operators are using stolen attachments to better disguise their malicious emails as authentic. For example, at least one Emotet campaign email included five legitimate but stolen attachments, with a malicious link placed inside the body of the email itself. I don't know about you, but if anyone emails me five attachments, I'm already upset, virus or not. Finally, InfoSecurity Magazine found a new phishing email scam that promises users a 400-pound tax refund. Listeners should know that there's a far simpler way to get a tax refund. Move to the United States and be a billionaire. Our main story today concerns Identity and Access Management, or IAM. This set of technologies and policies control who accesses what resources inside a system, from company files being locked away for only some employees to even your online banking account being accessible only to you. IAM has evolved in recent years with the introduction of many new systems to both improve user experience and reliability. To avoid every employee needing 27 passwords just to do their job, tools like single sign-ons have emerged, letting employees access a vast trove of resources with just one set of credentials. But with more individuals using more accounts to access more resources than ever before, threats have similarly emerged. Identity theft and fraud are only going up— And the introduction and development of several new technologies could greatly influence how we interact with our online tools tomorrow. To better understand identity and access management, its impacts on the digital and physical world today, and who holds the responsibility to manage it, we're talking today to Chuck Brooks, cybersecurity evangelist and adjunct professor for Georgetown University's Applied Intelligence Program and Graduate Cybersecurity Programs. Chuck, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: To help our listeners at home understand you, your role, your interests, and your research, can you just describe your background and what you do?
1: Sure, I'll give you a a thumbnail history here. Originally from Chicago and I came out to Washington DC like everyone else to an internship and ended up working here, going into government, working nine years on the Hill for the late Senator Allen Specter in in technology issues and security issues. And then when uh, 9-11 came along, I started the Department of Homeland Security, and I was asked to to help set it up, specifically the science and technology directorate. And so I I spent a few years there. And of course, the the focus then was, you know, weapons of mass destruction and CBRNE. But cybersecurity was there, too. And it was the first real focus of the threat of cyber in the digital world and how it may harm us as a country. So I got really interested in it, and I kept the passion up. and, And when I left government, I worked for some of the big companies such as Xerox, SRA International, and, and most recently, General Dynamics Mission Systems, where I, I focused on cybersecurity, uh, technologies, looking at the markets, analysis, growth, where trends are going. Aside from what you mentioned earlier, of teaching and doing this work, I'm knee-deep in every cyber issue for the last decade, including on LinkedIn.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty broad. Very expansive, it sounds like. And with that, let's get right into it. First, pretty basically, what is identity and access management and, and what role does it play for companies today? That's
1: a good question and it's a great way to frame the, the issue. You know, basically, identity and access management is enterprise IT. And it's really what you said earlier. It's about defining and managing the roles of, and the access privileges of the individuals or the network users or sometimes the customers. Or using or granted those privileges to work on the, the network. So, what you have to do then is, is know who the users are, what their capabilities are, what they're allowed to see, what they're not allowed to see, and how to control it, and to monitor the logs, to take data. So, it's, it's really controlling the identity of the user. And for a lot of the issues nowadays, many users have multiple identities. They may be an administrator, they may be a user, they may be both, they may be a customer, they may be involved in the supply chain of another project. So it's a very difficult task.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you noted right there, like you said, it's not just one user has the same type of access for everything. Someone like myself, right? I could have different levels of access, even within my own company, varying levels, varying things I can pull from an online resource from cloud. I wanted to better understand here, can you give us some examples of what this looks like in the real world?
1: Well, in the real world, let's say you're defending a company, or if you're the administrator, or the CISO of a company, you have to track what data goes where with your employees. And it's not an easy thing to do because it could be in the cloud, it could be in a server, it could be an edge device, it's a smartphone. And you really have to see whether there's an inside threat, whether information is being leaked, or whether someone's doing something carelessly that, that opens up a, an attack for ransomware or malware. The real issue now is is that we're moving to a remote system you know, where most people are working at home. This attack surface and the responsibilities and roles of the CISO to track all the identities and activities, the data use of of the users, become more difficult because a lot of them are using different devices. They're not necessarily just using the work devices. And in some cases, they're cross-pollinating the work devices and the personal devices. So that is the real issue. And then that's how breaches often happen is is when you have a situation where someone opens up on a, a website that they shouldn't open up, Malware gets put on the device it converts over to the work side and you've got a, a huge issue. So for an administrator and a CISO right now who's trying to control and access the privilege management of all the, of the employees, it's, it's not an easy task.
0: Yeah. And something you mentioned there and, and the way that I've been thinking about this a lot, right, is, is managing, again, accounts, managing often online access. And like you said, you know, what if someone visits a malicious website? That could actually spread across a network when i was thinking about these again like i said i keep just thinking of digital 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 and i'm wondering is everything here in, in this area of iam is it all digital or are there also physical things that are you know managed by digital identity management are, are there simple things you know like like doors or locks or or big things like i don't know like power grids or dams what's the gamut here
1: the gamut is that everything is connected via digital but it's also physical in cyber systems so You can be talking about the Internet of Things, you know, 20 billion connected devices, or you could be operating in a a SCADA system where you have to have authentication, maybe an iris scan or thumbprint to get into the system to be able to use it. There's really a meshing or a fusion of the physical and the cyber. And this goes back to basically to one of the key points of identity management is really authenticating the user. And how do you make sure that the user is is who they are? Obviously, there's, there's passwords, which can be stolen and often are. There's keys, you know, to secure them, and then there's different types of multi-factor authentication. These processes, as you mentioned, they're not limited just to being in the digital world. It's also you walk in the door, you connect your Nest, whatever you do. There's a physical aspect to it as well as a digital aspect to it.
0: Right here, you said a big problem here that that is trying to be solved. Right is is how to authenticate the user. Small things that I could think of here, where the risks in this are things like identity fraud. But I assume it's actually much bigger than this, just identity fraud. And just the way I think most people think of identity fraud, like, oh, you know, like, my identity was stolen and someone charged something to my credit card. Can you help us understand the landscape of threats here?
1: The landscape of threats are huge. I mean, you have to look at the threat actors. First, Mm -hmm. of course, the most dangerous and the most powerful are the state actors, which are targeting infrastructure. They're also targeting business, Then there's the rogue attackers, basically the hackers out there that are doing it for profit and money, maybe doing ransomware or get attacks against a hospital. And then you got your hacktivists, like the people that you saw recently with Twitter, basically a group of 19 and 20-year-old kids that basically use social engineering to get into an account. So it's a a wide gamut of different kinds of threats. Being able to keep your identity safe is more than just having your logs watched and and having the telemetry of your data checked. Also looking into the behavioral analytics now associated with the user, and that's where that the, the trends are going to IAM is because it has to be automated when you have so many people on the system, and you have to look for anomalies. And when you find an anomaly, is when you can determine maybe there's something wrong going on there. And that's probably the easiest way also to get insider threats, you know, because you you can't necessarily know who leaves with data on the thumb drive or does what without knowing where their user history is. So it's becoming a much more sophisticated area and a lot more attention is now being played by both government and companies into this area of identity management.
0: Something you said there, uh, behavioral analytics, is that what I'm assuming it is here, which is trying to create a profile of, of how a user typically uses their authenticator? You know, I know that, you know, employee A, logs in every day between 8 and 10 a.m. They log off at this time and they're using this IP address to come in. And so if, if something falls out of that behavior pattern, then that's like raising a red flag. Help me understand it.
1: Yeah. No, I think you had it exactly. I mean, it's mm-hmm. sort of a context to where network access control is what's being used. So if someone's doing something different outside the context of their, what they're supposed to be doing, that red flag is raised and it can be done you know, automatically, or it could be done manually by the administrator looking into it. The behavioral analytics is, you know, also based on, on your level of privilege. Part of the problem is that with companies is that people leave or actually stay sometimes, stay in the company. They're, they build up sort of levels of privilege, and they don't relinquish what they had before, so they still have access to all kinds of things they may not necessarily need to have access to. And plus, the more they have of that, the more they're open to their their own credentials being stolen and accessing the company. That's happened in a couple of cases where companies I've been with, where a back door was left accidentally open and and all of a sudden the nation states in the door stealing credentials. So it's a real dilemma.
0: It sounds like you said sort of everything here is there's a potential risk and there's a potential different kind of attack too. Like you said, with this, I, I wanted to look briefly into the future because again, I'm kind of assuming here that, there's quite a few technologies out there that can help with identity and access management. Like you said, behavioral analytics, I assume, includes some artificial intelligence or machine learning. Can you help us understand you know, what other technologies do you think are going to have an impact on IAM in the future?
1: For sure, machine learning, as it already is right now, it's playing a role, in, like I said earlier, in recognizing anomalies and also looking at patterns of behavior. And it could flag things automatically. Artificial intelligence would be the next level of it, where it has some sort of independent quality to recognize things. And the real danger, I think, is, and when you're looking at some of these capabilities, is is that when the adversaries use them too, they could use it for social engineering capabilities to really look at gaining more into the the identities and, and user behavior to find a way to do something. For example, it might be that if you're a nation state and you've identified through whatever social media, looking at posts and Someone when you, you find their interests, you build a file on them, you look at them, you follow their career, they're in a sensitive position, they have access to information you want, you know that maybe where they live, their street names, you can guess on their passwords, or maybe they have a they look at the record. And then you could necessarily, if are using machine learning, you could plant something in there to trigger something. Anytime they use this, send me a, a you know, message. There's a lot of interesting ways to sort of subvert the system. My fear and hope is sort of the two things, is that as we use these, these advanced technologies, you know, that it could be definitely, with a huge shortage of qualified workers, a lot of gaps. But we have to be equally strong in protecting the networks from the, from the adversaries that now include some powerful nation states and others that want to profit from it. And with the ability now to do ransomware so easily because of cryptocurrency, it's become as much of a threat from espionage. and in in geopolitical threats to now to sort of a criminal enterprise and you're seeing a lot more criminal attacks because of this
0: are there other technologies or other advancements like you said with cryptocurrency that have also made it easier for let's say the the layman hacker to get involved in these types of attacks
1: oh absolutely i mean first of all if you're a layman hacker you can go to the deep web now and you can you know get tools and you can share tools plus Mm. you can go to a lot of Posts in some of these areas, they'll tell you what to do and how to do it, or you can find others. So you know the, right, the, the sharing guidelines. of information by the yeah yeah the sharing of information by the bad guys is been made, made easier by the ability to communicate and remain anonymous for most of them. It's very difficult to prosecute them too. So it's getting much more becoming much more of a threat. And there are other technologies too, I think that we'll eventually get to that may help solve this, which would be sort of the quantum cryptography, which will basically protect our identities in a much more stronger way that's not too far off we do have some types of cryptography now that are very effective used in military capacities but in intelligence capacities but some of these will be made commercial sooner than later and then we do re- achieve a, the quantum capabilities i think it'll it may revolutionize the whole identity aspects to being a user on the internet
0: let's take a step back there pretty basically what is quantum cryptography
1: cryptography itself is when you're, you're matching sort of, it could be symmetric or asymmetrical. And most of it is symmetrical when you're matching, matching a, basically a, a key to something. Then it says, okay, this is you, you can come in. Now with the, with the quantum capability, it's basically beyond even supercomputing, where you could have basically sort of a series of numbers or capabilities that can't be breached or, or hacked into. So you could create a code that is basically unhackable and have a cryptography capability that no one could basically get through. Of course, nothing is invincible, so there's ways, supposedly, to crack it, but it would make the user capability much more safe, but it would also allow those who have it on the bad guy side to use it to basically synthesize data and go through things that they have basically stolen, too. So, again, technologies always have a good side and a bad side. It depends how you use them.
0: Yeah, the way I had heard about quantum computing When it came to encryption, was actually, like you said, the dangers that, you know, if we ever actually have that breakthrough, that the standard encryption we use could much more rapidly be broken by computing processes that can sort of guess a bunch of different methods simultaneously. That way they don't have to test and then wait and test and then wait to sort of break encryption. That, from my, I think, very basic, non-scientific understanding that's very, that That's
1: a very good description.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that it's everything happening at the same time. And again, that, that's a quicker way to break encryption. But what you're saying here is that there's a good side, too, that with quantum computing, we could create stronger encryption. Am I getting that right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And, and also, there's still the data we have. Again, mm-hmm. the, you, you have these problems, too, because what you just brought up is another issue, that most of our systems are, are still relying on legacy data, legacy systems, not all of them are in the cloud they're all over the place. To be able to sort of centralize them may be a capability of of quantum computing, but it's still a difficult task, you know, when everything is in in different forms.
0: So I wanted to go back to, again, the, the threat landscape and understanding the many types of attacks that are out there. And again, the many types of defenses that might be out there. And something that I was looking into as well, whenever we look at like identity and access management as biometrics. Biometrics, you know, seems are getting baked into our phones. I I know that some of my online accounts even offer a way for me to use my thumbprint, which is in my phone, to unlock something separate, like my Chase Bank account or my, you know, my Samsung Pay. It says, hey, do you want to unlock the use of your credit card with your thumbprint, which is already stored in your Samsung phone? Can you talk about how biometrics might sort of affect this field going into the future
1: biometrics are with us as you said right now they're part of commerce and e-commerce and we have it there is an issue uh, of course that that's a privacy issue it's a big one in the tech community and a lot of people don't like the idea of having biometrics so available particularly when you're not going to get into a phone when crime or something happens so there's a debate on that but i think as we evolve you know and we go more and more and and as nanotechnology comes in, it's, it's inevitable that it's going to be actually maybe even, even implanted in us. I mean, the Swedes are already doing that in tests. You put a chip in yourself and you you go and you open the store, you to your bank, whatever. I see that happening. I mean, I think, you know, it could be actually adapted eventually to our DNA. So biometrics is, is here to stay. It's, it's definitely being used in a security sense right now. It's viable technology and it's part of identity authentication, particularly when you're looking at SCADA systems when you have sensitive areas that people can't get into or shouldn't be able to get into without being the right person. But there's always ways around. it. And you see, one of the interesting things right now it's happening with everyone wearing masks, the whole facial recognition, mm-hmm. which is biometrics, it was controversial already, but now you are know, using these masks that they can hide that capacity. So there's a lot of ways around
0: it. Something as simple as like a mask, right, does provide an obstacle for technology that has been in development for Decades, honestly. Yeah. And then with all of these things that we know, with all of these technologies that are affecting identity and access management, there's artificial intelligence, machine learning, biometrics. That's just three. There's likely many, many more. And with the many types of attacks that could happen from a compromised identity, right, not just... You know, someone steals some money, but someone accesses accounts. Someone, like you said, accesses an engineer's account in a company on Twitter, and then that is, you know, the first step to a cryptocurrency scam, like we saw. Whose responsibility is it to manage and secure all of this?
1: It depends where you're looking. If you divide, it's, it's really it should be a public-private partnership to try and defend this, and it is in the civilian sector side, I'm putting aside defense area and intelligence, which has its own networks and its own capabilities and has a national security mission for the United States. That's their role to do that, and helping also against critical infrastructure attacks. But the real focus in in U.S. government is the Department of Homeland Security and and CISA. And they are working in these, what what are called ISACs, a lot of different industry groups to develop best practices, share intelligence, and share even technologies and even test technologies for some of these threats. Because most of the infrastructure in the United States is actually owned by the private sector, about 85%. So you have to be able to... uh, work with government and with the industry to do that. So it's, it's a real re- responsibility. The problem is well, most of the attacks now that are happening, the basic attacks that we talked about with cryptocurrency and others, mm-hmm. are against smaller, less capable industries, mainly healthcare right now, that have low budgets for security, have a lot of systems, have a lot of devices included. They're just ripe for ransomware attacks. And so unless you're like a casino that's already fortified and then putting millions and millions of dollars in your security, most of us are vulnerable, and particularly small businesses, you know, that just don't have the budgets or the expertise to do it. So I think that's where, again, where technology may play a role with, with automation, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, sort of a level of playing field eventually, because we just don't have the manpower, or the capability or all the tools you have to do it. And the other part of it is that there's so many tools out there, which tools do you use? It's a real interesting uh, question to say, who has responsibility? I guess... When it comes down to
0: it, we, we all do. Let's say then that I'm chief information security officer at a place, like you said, like a, like a hospital, like a healthcare facility. What steps can I take today to better manage this, to better secure this? Because like you said, there's so many tools out there. I think even you know anyone would be confused about, okay, which one is good? Which one is bad? Which steps are good? Which steps are bad? What could I do today and going forward to better get a control of this. The first
1: thing I I recommend is no matter what industry or what company you are, is do your own vulnerability assessment. You know, look at where all your gaps are, where the places of attack can be. You do a professional, bring them in and let them do it and see where your vulnerabilities are. So once you do that, then you can develop a strategy of what you need. And of course, everyone has some basic needs. If you're a hospital, I mean, you should be firewalled. I mean, you should have VPNs on sensitive data to devices. You know, you should have your data obviously backed up. You should have, so encryption on, on some of the sensitive stuff, on particularly health records, you need specialized security training, too, for your people. I think most of the attacks and stuff that do happen happen still basically through phishing. You know, They could go to anyone from a, a nurse, doctor, to a patient to be able to get into the system. So I think when it comes down to it, it really comes down to the first thing is, is also teaching your employees and, and people who are under your network basic cyber hygiene and what not to click on and what to do you know, how to have strong passwords, you know, make sure that also everything is, is completely patched. Where the biggest problem at the hospital a few years ago is when an old malware got out and the old patches weren't there. And so it took down hundreds of thousands of computers. So there's a whole lot of elements to it. And that's why I think cybersecurity is not going to go away. It's going to demand more capabilities, expertise, and technologies in the future. And part of this is, is really, you know, get a, select the right managed security partner, particularly if you're a smaller business, because you can't do it alone.
0: This thing you said, the, the vulnerability assessment, right? The first step here. In your experience, what are some of the easy ones that once someone's done a vulnerability assessment, they, they bubble up and really easy to overlook?
1: Well, the first thing I think a lot of them, they never change the default passwords, you know, from a lot of the devices in, <laughs> in their, their system. So they may have been yeah. never operating for 10 years and the same default passwords on their routers and switchers and servers. And... So they're very vulnerable right there. You know, also, they often have Wi-Fi that's not secure or lack of firewall. They don't have policies in place. Most of them, you know, what to do. And any sort of incident management, if something does happen, probably the most thing is really you find is that most of them just don't back up the data. It's sort of mm-hmm. an afterthought. And I think some of this is changing because cybersecurity has been so prevalent in the news and so much is happening. And ransomware is so, so much of a threat now, just not just to businesses, but to individuals using things. So I think people are becoming more aware that they need to have the right software and capabilities in place and know where to go if something does happen.
0: Chuck, I wanted to just thank you again for being on the show today. Oh, it's really been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Emery Roan on parental monitoring apps. How popular are they? What capabilities do they provide? And is there a safe way to use them with your children?